Thank you for listening to the Stonehouse Sermon Series, A Disciple's Songbook. This series focuses on the Psalms of Ascent, songs that God's people would sing on their journey up to Jerusalem. Stonehouse Church. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as we just read a minute ago, we're in Psalm 122. And it is, oh man. I tell you what, you know, when you experience something that you haven't experienced for a long time, you realize how much for granted you took that thing uh, when you did have it. Um, and I'm going somewhere with this toward this right here, what we just enjoyed and what we freely enjoy on a regular basis. And that is what our psalm speaks to today, and that is the worship of God amongst his people. So a couple, about a month ago now, I got to go home to Minnesota, and I shivered. You know what shivering is? It's, it's when you're cold in your body is trying to warm itself by pulling blood inward to the vital organs. Uh, I used to experience this on the regular as I grew up in Minnesota. Um, and when I experience it here in Florida, I get so excited, I usually tweet about it. Like, I'm like, hey, guys, <laughs> I shivered, right? Like, I'm really happy to shiver. Um, and so I, I went to this baseball game uh, with my family, um, uh, and, and we sat way up in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it was windy and cold and rainy all day. And so we were thinking, oh, great, you know, like, the game's going to be, like, canceled or we're just not going to go. Well, rain ended up clearing out, but it stayed windy and it was cold. It was 57 degrees. Yes, 57 degrees. It was the month of August. Um, and, and we put jackets on and drank hot cocoa. And I went to the bathroom and intentionally turned on the hot water and put my hands under it for, like, five minutes because my hands were numb from being out in the cold, and I was experiencing something that I had taken for granted uh, so much so back in the day uh, when I lived in Minnesota. But now that I don't ever get it, I just realized, oh, man, I miss not being sweaty and sticky and gross, right? Like, I miss this <laughs> feeling. Um, so if I ever hug you after church, apologies. That's my Minnesota blood coming through. Uh, but, but I say that to think of this Instance, We're going to look at Psalm 122. We're going to be talking about something that for us is so commonplace and so normal and we're so used to it that we're probably prone to miss the absolute spectacular nature of it, right? Because we just are immersed in it. Shivering is no big deal to a Minnesotan. It's every day. It happens all the time. But when you miss it, for years on end, you realize, man, what a, what a treasure to not sweat, right? Like, worship for us is that thing that we're in the midst of so regularly. It's so commonplace. It's so free for us that it is something that we might not even notice how spectacular it is. And this psalm draws us to this moment of going, I'm, I'm right in the middle of something, that entire generations of people 
yearned for with a deep and lasting ache because they did not experience it the way that we do, right? And so on some level today, this psalm is going to help rewind us out of the New Testament era of the church and pop us back into the existence of Israel in a time when the temple and the worship of God was so prized and so precious that it was spoken of like a fabulous feast. It was talked about in the way that you would talk about love with your spouse. It was, it was the way that these dudes talked about wanting to go to worship is 100% foreign to us. Why? Because we're so accustomed to what we just did, what we're doing right now, how free we are to do these things, and how regular they happen in our lives. Okay, And so, you know, these psalms, as we began a couple weeks ago, these psalms are to try to help us move into this, like, poetic, song-like space of feeling the truths of God uh, as they were expressed through song uh, while these guys uh, wrote about uh, the journey towards worshiping God in Jerusalem. That's what these psalms are all about. And if you haven't been with us, I'd highly encourage you to go back and at least listen to week one of this series because there's a lot of introductory remarks on that message, uh, kind of uh, setting up the book of Psalms in general, and then also setting up the Psalms of Ascent specifically. Uh, and the Psalms of Ascent are what we are uh, journeying through here this, this fall. I use that word in quotation marks. Um, so before we get into that, I need to uh, make an announcement and repeat an announcement. Um, sorry, I just, as we were worshiping, I was like, my Lord, this is so regular for me, right? And I just, I had to make those comments off the cuff. I'm sorry. So uh, in your bulletin, uh, this is announcement number one that I need to give you um, is a little flyer that says Hurricane Harvey Relief up at the top with um, Stonehouse Church in Acts 29 up there. Uh, you, you guys know, uh, I mean, unless you're living under a rock, last Friday, uh, you know, a week and two days ago, uh, Hurricane Harvey made landfall in Texas and Houston uh, was put underwater fourth largest city in our country, thousands and thousands and thousands of people displaced from their homes. Um, and so we've been watching uh, rescue efforts all week, right? Uh, just heroic and amazing stories of people acting like Jesus, right? Not caring about their own life as much as they care about somebody else's. It's really cool to see the world uh, exhibit the glory of God like that. Even people who don't worship God, there's something deep inside of us that says, this is a moment that would mean their life is more valuable than mine. I mean, it's really amazing to watch that. I, I mean, it leads me to worship Jesus as I see fire rescuers, policemen, uh, regular folks give up their lives to try to save somebody else. And so that's been going on. And now we kind of see the transition into relief. Um, uh, and that relief will take some time here. But then there will also be a transition into um, into recovery. And so uh, uh, Stonehouse Church is connected to a larger church planting network called X29. Uh, and this week, our executive director made a video and sent it out to us as pastors of X29 churches and said, hey, uh, we can help uh, in some really specific ways. Um, obviously, Red Cross, you know, amazing thing to help out. Uh, Salvation Army doing amazing. I mean, there's a lot of great organizations doing great work. And so if you're, uh, if you're kind of led towards helping through one of those organizations, that's, that's absolutely phenomenal. And we would encourage that. Um, but the Acts 29 churches in Houston specifically uh, kind of put out a call through the Acts 29 global network to say, uh, here's how we can help. 
um, as, as a group of churches, as, as a body of uh, kind of a family of churches. And so this is right out of an email from Acts 29. And uh, number one, you can pray, obviously, and uh, I hope that you do, and I hope that I do, and I hope that we continue to do that, um, especially because of the unique opportunity to share the love of Jesus in this situation. Um, and that's why our uh, kind of uh, angle toward giving would would be encouraged through the local church. Um, again, nothing against some of these other organizations. They're absolutely essential. Um, but we would encourage giving through local churches because of the opportunity that those churches have in their immediate uh, community, uh, meeting the needs of people they already know, the names and addresses and children and grandparents of, right? Um, even serving churches that need recovery and so on and so forth. And so under that give category, you can see Acts 29 as a network has already uh, put funds toward this. And there are ways that you can specifically as an individual give. Um, and we as a church are still talking and considering what we might be able to do uh, to help there as well. Uh, there's a special note on options two or three to indicate if you do give that it is that you're uh, giving from an Acts 29 source to help with tracking and accountability. Uh, and then the third thing on there is that the, the, the Houston Church Planting Network, which contains many Acts 29 churches, uh, is working to compile a long-term list of people from the outside that might come in and do help. Um, and that's, that's probably going to be months and months uh, ongoing. And so if you're somebody who could give up time for that kind of a thing and take a trip to Houston, physically actually go there, uh, please let me know. I might be able to connect you to a church that we know somewhere in the area that's doing that. Uh, or if there's enough interest and ability here amongst us, we might just go, right? Like, I could do that. I could give a few days and just go. Um, and so if, if there's enough interest, we could put a small team together, jump in a truck, uh, and just work, work, work for several days to try to help. So that's what that's all about. Wanted you to see that. And then I also wanted to repeat the city groups announcement. We've got two city groups cranking already, Central Park Neighborhood and up in North St. Pete. Uh, one group meets on Wednesday. One group meets on Monday. If you need info on those things, please just reach out. Uh, let us know. We'll hook you up with an address where you can go. Cool? All right. I'm like all backwards. Let's pray. Actually, let's read Psalm 122 again. Uh, we're, we're intentionally reading these again and again and again, right? This isn't like, hey, uh, I just really like to hear myself read these things. Like we want these to become, like we said, kind of repetitive songs for us. You know, like as you get into that song, uh, you sense more and more the meaning of that song and, and you start to make sense of kind of the... Uh, the, the uh, uh, the examples and the, the, the uh, metaphors and, and the different tones of the song. And so we just, we're going to keep on reading these psalms uh, week in and week out as we gather. So I encourage you to leave your Bible open or your Bible app, or we got Bibles on the back table. Uh, leave it open to Psalm 122 today. So here it is again. This is a song of a sense of David. Uh, and it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you, peace within your walls, and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. All right, let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we really do not want to take for granted uh, what we have in these moments of being able to come before our Creator, 
our redeemer and our sustainer. Um, we should tremble at it, but, but we don't. And, and God, that's not for us a prayer of guilt and manipulation. God, it's just a, it's just a recognition of how accustomed we are to this moment. God, I pray that you would pull us into the skin of David, that great king who was called a man after your own heart, uh, who longed to be in the presence of God, who yearned for it, like he said, a, like a deer panting for water. I mean, just the, the words that he used to express his desire to come and worship you are words that are so strange to us. And so, God, I pray as, as we just see him and see his desire and see kind of the world that he lived in and, and the desires that he had, that through those things, God, our hearts would be softened and that we would really be moved to know that you're here, that you're with us, that you've called us to yourself, and that, God, you've come near to us before we ever began to come near to you, and that's just unbelievable when we think of how we often have treated you in your presence. So God, humble our hearts, and man, I pray, God, that at the end this would not be a day of guilt, but that, God, it would be a day of glory, that we would experience something supernatural today by your Spirit that would help us to see the glory of God because there is nothing like it. The solar eclipse isn't like it. The terror of a storm isn't like it. The birth of a new child isn't like it. There is nothing like the glory of God. Help us to see and believe this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this psalm, our, our, our last two psalms were, man, they were... They were seemingly unorganized and like kind of just like just a spurt of emotions, weren't they? If you remember back the first one, this guy was just super frustrated with like the lies and the deceit and just the warring unpeacefulness of the world around him. He was just like there was an angst in him. He's like, man, this, this world is just a mess and I want to get away. Uh, and then we saw last week the, the kind of departure from the idea that life is always going to go good for me. And the psalmist realized, man, I, I know life isn't going to always go good for me, but in the midst of life not always going good, I have a guardian. And he spoke again and again of his keeper. It was basically seven verses of the exact same thing over and over again last week. <laughs> God's going to keep you. God can keep you. God keeps Israel. God can keep me. God will keep you always. God will keep you from trouble. I mean, it was just, so it was almost like this mantra this guy just kept telling himself again and again. So in this psalm this week, kind of for the first time, we actually have some sequence uh, and, and almost like some like logical linear trajectory here. So it's going to be very strange compared to the last two weeks, uh, but we're actually going to very clearly walk through three points here and see them in the text and not have to kind of contrive them and pull them out. They're, they're very clearly there. And so the, 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 the important central matter for understanding Psalm 122 is that the image of Jerusalem, the city, right, and particularly the temple in the middle of Jerusalem, right, the place of worship for the Israelites, that that reality is, is central and essential to understanding what worship meant for the people of God 
in David's day when he wrote this psalm, right? And even the people of God after David's day, pre-Jesus, okay? So all of the Israelites, the Hebrew children, Jewish people, whatever you want to call them, the, the idea of worship for them centered around Jerusalem and the temple, okay? And we have to see that that is, uh, that is the existence of worship for these people. Otherwise, we'll, we'll really miss the point of this whole psalm. And so the image of Jerusalem and the temple being the center of worship here uh, helps us to understand what it was like to be an Israelite. And to be an Israelite meant to belong to God, right? And it meant also to always be looking toward God in the midst of all the surrounding scenarios and everything that was going on, Psalm 120, Psalm 121, right? All the stuff, the trajectory was a, was a gaze toward God. It was, it was an upward, forward looking toward God. And, and in order to look to God, immediately your natural inclination as an Israelite would be to look to Jerusalem or to look to the temple. Like that, that's what you would think because in Jerusalem and in the temple would be the place of the gathered worship, uh, the sacrifices and the oracles of God, the places where you would hear about God, the places where you would gather with the community to look toward God, the places where you would open the scrolls and hear from God, right? They were all centralized there in Jerusalem. And so to belong to God meant to look toward Jerusalem and the temple, and it meant to worship God alone in the midst of a culture that was, uh, was worshiping many, many gods, right? The, the Jewish people would worship God alone. And these Psalms of Ascent, as we've already said, are Psalms that uh, help us to see that they, there was this uh, continual journey towards Jerusalem. It was actually commanded in Deuteronomy that every male uh, child would go to Jerusalem three times a year. Uh, and so kind of the natural outflow of that is that when they grew up and had a family, the whole family would come with. And so it was kind of a command. It was a, a, a decree of the Lord that these people, no matter where they would, would go up three times a year to Jerusalem uh, to worship God in the temple. And so uh, in this psalm then, kind of the layout of the psalm, we see three things. In verse 1 and 2, we see the joyous arrival in Jerusalem. Okay, so Psalm 120, 121, we were talking about journeying toward Jerusalem. Now here in Psalm 122, we're talking about being in Jerusalem. Okay, so in a sense, kind of the, the journeying part is over. Now what, what do we behold now that we're here in Jerusalem? And so we see that, the joyous arrival in Jerusalem. And then number two, we see in verses three through five, the unique beauty and structure of Jerusalem. So we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the architectural realities that existed in the city and what those said to us about God. And then thirdly, verses six through nine, there was a desire for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem. So we kind of see these three things sectioned out. And for us, since we don't worship at a temple, right, we have to translate this. We translate this into modern Christian understanding of what it looks like to worship God. And we see in John 4, uh, there was a woman at the well. Jesus had this conversation with her. She was a Samaritan, um, and, and, and Jesus is talking with her. He, he kind of prophesies to her to, to help her to see, oh, wow, this isn't no normal dude. Like, he's telling me my life story, what's going on here. Uh, and she responds and says, I see that you're a prophet. And then she goes right into a common argument at that moment, and that was, hey, we're Samarians, and we worship here on this mountaintop. You're Israelites. And so you say that worship happens only down in Jerusalem, okay? And Jesus responds to this woman and says, listen, there's a time coming. In fact, it's already here now where the location of worship will not be the central issue. It's not going to be about if you worship on a mountain or if you worship at a temple. It's going to be about me 
I am the one who has come. I am the fulfillment of the prophecies. I am Messiah, and all people will be able to worship me wherever they are in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus made a declaration at that moment. He said, temple worship is changing forever, right? He says there's a time coming and has now come. So it was both a here now and a yet to come reality, right? Because Jesus, when he died on the cross, there was a curtain in the temple. Anybody remember what happens to the curtain? Gets ripped. Importantly, it gets ripped from top to bottom, which no human hand could do because God was ripping the curtain and the temple was changing forever. Right? The existence of worship changed at that moment because Jesus made the final access possible through his shed blood, through his death on the cross. And he made it possible for us to worship God. And so Jesus makes that declaration. And so therefore, for us, we have worship somewhat redefined, right? Worship is not centered on a temple and centered on Jerusalem. But we also have to be careful because there are actually two aspects now of worship for us as disciples of Jesus. One is the corporate worship of the body of Jesus, right? The gathering together for worship, what we're experiencing right now. That's one aspect of worship that the New Testament talks about. And then secondly, a life of worship. This introductory idea in the New Testament that everything you do and everywhere you go and everything you say and all the places that you dwell in that reality is worship. Right? And so we see this, this dual reality in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 speaks loudly to this idea of corporate worship. The writer of Hebrews says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews says, Go to church, y'all! Like, go to church! And, and happily go to church and encourage your brothers and your sisters to come with you to church. It's an echo of Psalm 122.1. I was juiced, man. I was jacked up when they said, let's go worship. Right? The writer of Hebrews repeats that refrain. Like, love the corporate worship, he says. Don't neglect going. Right? And this was a customary experience for the very early church, for the New Testament church. In Acts 20, verse 7, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, and in Romans 16, 5, all of those places, there was an assumption of local church gatherings. The word, when you come together, was used, Paul said. When you come together to the Corinthian church. He didn't say, hey, you guys, you should start coming together. No, they were already coming together. It was the common experiences of the New Testament church. And so we see that corporate worship, a gathering together in the local church, is an aspect of our worship today as disciples of Jesus. And so when we see David talk about Jerusalem and the temple, we can make a direct correlation to us coming to church coming to church. And I use that term loosely because we are the church, but we do also gather as the church, right? These are functional realities of following Jesus. So that's the first aspect of worship for us in the New Testament. And then secondly, there's the life of worship, Romans 12:1, And it says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. So Paul picks up on the words of Jesus in John 4 to the woman. 
because he told the woman at the well that you will worship in spirit and in truth. And so here Paul says this is a spiritual worship. And so he talks about offering your whole body to God as worship. Romans 6.13 speaks of this as well. So does 1 Peter 2.5, that we're to present ourselves to God, the wholeness of ourselves, right? And Paul said, whether you eat or drink, whether you're standing up or walking around, whatever you're doing, do it to the glory of God. The whole of our life is to be worshiped. And this is an important distinction. This is not an either-or proposition. This is a both-and, okay? To experience true worship is to experience both-and, right? We don't say, well, I just spiritually worship, so I don't belong to a church. I don't go and worship at a church. That's missing a biblical totality of what it means to worship, okay? It's a common refrain for us today, uh, but we have to steer away from it. We have to be careful for it, right? And today's focus is going to be primarily on the corporate part, Okay, so you're going to hear me from here on out basically talking about this moment, gathering together as a local body on a Sunday morning to worship God. Okay, that's basically what Psalm 22 is talking about. And so we're going to be focusing on that. So we've got to keep in mind the corporate worship and the life of worship, right? Those are both realities, but we're going to talk mainly about the corporate worship today. Okay, does that make sense? John Collins says this, that Christians who sing this, Psalm 122, recognize that in their gathered worship, they are carrying out the task of the temple and their Davidic king, Jesus, is present with them. Okay? The direct translation of worship in the temple for us today is that when we gather, we are experiencing temple worship. Okay? We are experiencing what they experienced, the gathering of God's people, and we're carrying out that task and as we do so, Jesus is present with us. Now, a minute ago, I said something about how there's a common refrain today that says, you know, I worship and I don't then need to belong to a church and so on and so forth. And really, like, I get that, right? And why do I get that? Mainly I get that because there's been some really messed up stuff in churches, in previous generations and even in our generation. And as people encounter that mess, it leads to grave distrust. It leads to often woundedness, right? Um, and, and, and it pushes people towards a, a feeling of isolation, right? They, they think, well, if that's what it means to belong to a local congregation and to see brothers and sisters hurting one another, to see leaders in the church train wreck and ruin their lives and the lives of many, many people around, to see people steal money, to see them have affairs, to see them split the church because of the color of carpet or there's a drum set, right? Like, this is a very real pain for us, but we cannot allow our experiences to trump the word of God and tell us what our reality should be right? And that takes a really humble posture, right? To be a person who's been hurt and who looks at the church and goes, what? Right? To still engage, that's, that's a tough thing. And we really want to pay attention to that in our church. Like we think, so far as we evaluate our city, we think we are literally swimming 
in multitudes of people who have that experience, those experiences, whatever they are. And we hope by God's grace with the spirit of the Lord active in our hearts and lives as we seek repentance, as we pursue humbly the holiness of God that Jesus might heal and restore, right? And here's the really important thing about that. As we pursue that perfect and idealistic ad, uh, uh, disposition in our community, we're going to totally blow it, right? Like, I just have to be frank. We're going to miss the mark. But I hope that we'll become a people that understand that missing the mark is what sets us up to be saved by Jesus, <laughs> right? It's the very prerequisite to coming to the cross is, hey, God, I blew it. And so if we can be humble about the places where we blow it and, and, and repent when we do so and submit ourselves to biblical and community discipline, whatever that looks like, then I believe that the, the, the glory of the church, which points toward Jesus, the ultimate glory, I, I believe there can be restoration, right? And we'll see at the end of the psalm that David yearns for that reality. And so we, we really, we want to be sensitive to our time and our place. But we also want to, from the mountaintops, proclaim what's in this psalm. And that is, when we gather as God's people together in worship, the glory of God is exploding from us outward so that we would see it amongst one another, so that the world around us might behold it, and so that more and more and more people would worship their creator and their redeemer and their provider because it's what they were made to do, right? So this day is like this gloriously heavy recognition of like, this is your job, right? We are the church and God will work through us to do this healing and restoring thing to the glory of Jesus. Amen? That's a beautiful, beautiful hope. And so with the gathering of the local church for cor corporate worship in mind, let's look at these three aspects of Psalm 122. So number one, the joyous arrival in Jerusalem is translated to us today as the gladness and prioritization of gathering for corporate worship. Okay, and we'll take a look at that in a minute. There's a direct translation from the joyous arrival in Jerusalem to us being glad and for us prioritizing this gathering for corporate worship. Number two, the unique beauty and structure of Jerusalem points us towards the God-centeredness and the fruitfulness of corporate worship. Okay, Corporate worship is to be God-centered and it also bears fruit in our lives as disciples. It does. It, it just it bears fruit spiritually in our lives as we continue together. And then number three, a desire for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem that David cried out for. We see a desire for the worldwide worship of Jesus. So let's take these one at a time. Verses one and two, let's read those again. David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So, this, so this is David's first psalm in the psalm of ascents. And right away we have like 
this completely different feel from the first two Psalms. There's this exuberant joy that erupts from the heart of David. He's just, I mean, he's like a giddy kid who you said, you told him he's got free tickets to the ball game. You're going to sit front row and eat Cracker Jacks all day. He's just like, woohoo, let's go watch the game. Like he's just, he's leaping out of his skin with this kind of comment. And we see there's other places in the Psalms, uh, like we said earlier, that there's words that are used to talk about these moments that are just foreign to us, right? Psalm 27, 4, there's this, this longing in David. He's like, man, I just want to go to the temple. Like, if I could just behold the glory of God, if I could just sit there and, like, absorb the word of God, oh, that's all that I want, we're just like, what a strange little man you are, right? Like this, this, this aching in him is so foreign to us, right? Like Saturday night, is that going through your, maybe, maybe by the spirit of God, I'm not trying to condemn, right? Like maybe that's happening and that's glorious if it does, but by and large, we're really used to this and it's another moment, right? Man, to David, to worship God was, I mean, it was, it was a feast, it was a feast. The sons of Korah in Psalm 84. Just, I encourage you, read Psalm 84 tomorrow morning. Dudes seem crazy. They're like, if I could spend one day at church, it would be better than a thousand days anywhere else. What? What does that even mean? Right? I mean, they're, they're speaking of their hearts yearning for the courts of the Lord. They're like, man, if I could just hold open the door at church... That's, that's a better job than I could ever get anywhere. That's all I want to do. I just want to hold the door to let people into church. If I could just do that, man, I, I would have arrived. Like they're using this language to communicate the central reality of worship of God and how deep of a blessing that is to their souls. And Eugene Peterson says this about Jerusalem. He says, when you went to Jerusalem, you encountered the great foundational realities that God created you, that God redeemed you, and that God provided for you. Everything in Jerusalem led them towards this uh, uh, just awe-inspired beholding of God. When they looked toward that place, when they considered the journey to Jerusalem, their hearts leapt for joy because in the journey and in the arriving, they would see God. That's what they felt. They would hear God. They would experience God in the midst of the community. And now, I, again, culturally, like, we have to pay attention to this, right? Like, some of us think this is crazy and you're insane. And the reason that we have that thought in our mind is because church for us historically, or maybe for our parents, who knows, has been nothing but pressure and guilt and shame. Religion has ruined the joy of church because religion has said you have to be here and if you're not here, it's a demerit and if it, you are here, it is a credit and when you get here, you better feel bad and you better dress nice and you better sit up, right? And we better see you next week, right? Like religion has brought this heavy pressure immediately related to the idea of coming to church. This is why it's just profoundly important for us to be welcoming people. It's essential. If we're going to communicate the glory of God and the, the joy of communal worship, we must communicate to anybody who comes in the door, man, I'm glad you're here. 
and never communicate, I haven't seen you in six months. Right? Like, there's a way to say I miss you without saying what the heck's wrong with you. Is there not? Right? Like when I came back from my trip and saw my wife, it wasn't like, oh, what the heck's wrong with you? Why'd you go to Minnesota for three days, you fool? It was like, I miss you. I'm glad you're here. Right? Like there was a joy in that reality. And so likewise, like as we see folks in and out and, and maybe kind of, you know, like dabble their toes in, like culturally we have to understand why. And then we have to give them an insane amount of grace to say, listen, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. Why? Because this is for your good. And this is for God's glory. And this is a beautiful moment for you to come and see God. Right? And so David had joy at the invitation. And for us, we have to be sensitive to the reality that there's all sorts of these funky pressures in many of our histories. And maybe you even have to lay some of those to rest, right? How do you lay them to the rest? To rest? By hearing the gospel. And the gospel says you don't come to church to get close to God. You come to church because God has already come close to you. In Jesus Christ, God has pursued you even though you were a rebel, even though you were ignoring him even though you were intentionally spiting him, or even maybe you were just ignorantly unaware of what you were doing to him. You were a far, in a far place away from God. And what did God do? He sent his only beloved begotten son so that all who might believe would have life everlasting. God has pursued you, and so coming here is responding to the pursuit. Right? It's like, yeah, I'll show up to the date. You're buying Awesome, I'm there. Right? He's made the invitation. He's put himself on the line. He's already laid his life down. We respond how? We respond in worship. We respond in gladness. And I need to say this too, because culturally I don't think it's like being digested and understood. Like it's totally normal to always be at church. Okay? Again, this isn't a guilt and manipulation statement. This is like... The gathering together for worship is commonplace for disciples of Jesus, right? This isn't about gold stars and attendance. Like, it's normal to want to come and to enjoy the fellowship of the local church, right? So it's, it's totally cool to prioritize coming here over everything. It makes sense, right? And I'm not here saying don't ever go on vacation, so on and so forth, right? But like, it's com- it, biblically, it's just, it's just com- commonplace, right? They called this the first day of the week, right? And the translation was immediately to like first fruits and, 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 and the coming and giving God your, your initial response, right? The, the idea that the first day of the week, I mean, they actually changed it to Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. They changed it from Saturday to Sunday. So this is the beginning of the, work, of the week. And at the beginning of the week, we come to God because he is a part of or he is a priority in our lives. So again, if what you just felt was guilt, right? Like, I need you to know the gospel, right? You don't come to get something or to earn, or God's not going to give you special, like, he's already done everything. When we come, we're just responding. Amen? And it's, it's it's a beautiful thing. And as we'll see here in a minute, corporate worship is worth it, because it recenters our life on God and it bears fruit as we're following after Jesus. 
Amen. So we see David in this psalm with just exuberant joy, and it leads us to say, man, I want to love and I want to prioritize being with the church. I want to love it. And maybe you just, maybe take some time and just be praying about that. Lord, I don't love it. God, can I just be honest with you? I don't get it. Right? Like what we're seeing in the Psalms again and again is the honesty here is just absolutely glorious. And it's not ever something to shy away from. And so it's totally cool to come to God and be honest and be like, God, I don't get it. Honestly, I don't get it. I don't know why I go there. Right? Hopefully today will help us move into a greater understanding, but I pray that the Spirit of God is alive in our hearts to point us towards the glory of Jesus and the worthwhile reality of being together as God's people. All right? Cool? Awesome. So secondly, verses 3 through 5, we see God-centeredness and fruitfulness of corporate worship. David says this about Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Martin Luther says this, the true beauty of the temple was because in that place the people heard the word of the Lord, called upon his name, found him merciful, giving peace and remission of sins, etc. This is rightly to behold the temple. There was something about coming to Jerusalem that drew your eyes and your heart up towards God and his work to make a people for himself that would worship him always, okay? The structure of Jerusalem, the, the architecture of Jerusalem, even the geography of Jerusalem on the highest hill in Palestine, like everything about Jerusalem took the human heart and the eyes upward to think of God, to think of what he had made, to think of what he had done to make a people for himself that are worshiping him, right? Like it was a city unmatched. There was something about the togetherness of Jerusalem that just made you feel all right. Like I've never been there. Anybody been there? I've never been there. You guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but everything that I'm reading about this says that when you walked through Jerusalem, you were like, man, this place is put together. Like, it's tight. It's secure. There's a unity here. There's a sharing here. There's an enjoying here. There's a peace here. And just like the sense of going through the city brought your heart towards this idea that God has done something amazing here, right? Jesus' disciples remarked at the temple about the stones and how glorious the temple was. Remember this? It was early in Mark when we, we went through this. Like there was, there was a, a remarking, right? There was this, oh, wow, type of moment when you walked in Jerusalem. And as a follower of God, it, it, it pulled your heart upward to say, man, this is, this is spectacular, Right? And within Jerusalem, there was this community and unity and togetherness that existed that you usually didn't feel anywhere else, especially if you were a part of the dispersion or the people of God who were spread elsewhere. Man, when you came together, you're like, yeah, man, this is my team, right? Like the Minnesota Twins are coming to town tomorrow, and I'm going to wear Twins gear to the game on Tuesday night. Yeah. And I'm going to high-five every Minnesota Twin fan in the place, and I'm like, these are my people, Right? Go twins. There was that feeling. I'm here. I'm, I'm amongst my people. 
right? Some of you just felt that this weekend when college football started. You're like, all right, finally, get my jersey on. Like, yeah, my team, right? Like, just this great feeling of being connected to something much bigger than yourself. And that sensation drew the disciple of God, the follower of God, upward. And at the center of this reality. So we see in verse 4 a decree for Israel, right? Like there was literally a command, come and worship. Okay? That existed in Israel. There was a command, come and worship. So it exists today to us as followers of Jesus. Come and worship. Come and do that. And then what was at the middle? Their thrones for judgment, verse 5, were set. The thrones of the house of David. Now, there's a really long discourse about this, but the, the word judgment here does not have to do with like guilty, not guilty. Okay, It has more to do with speaking the right and just decrees of God, like declaring what is real, declaring what is true above that which is false. And what, is, what declares that? The, the word of God declares that. Right? And so in that place, there was a recognition of what is true and what is false. That's what they're talking about here. In Jerusalem, you were instructed in the ways of God. You were told what is true about God. You were told what is true about you as a person. You were told what is true about the world. And the lies that you were fleeing, right, from Psalm 120, the lies that existed in the world around us, they were being pushed down. That's what we're talking about, judgment. What is right is surfacing, and what is wrong is being subdued. Okay, And so in the gathering for worship, there was a, a hearing of the just and right declarations of God. And to an Israelite, this was a welcomed reality. Right? And for us, this should be a welcomed reality. Like we labor to proclaim the truth of God so that it washes our souls as refreshment, as joy, as, as healing to our bones. Right? That's what the word of God was as it was declared there in Jerusalem. And so it is among us as we worship. And so this is why the Bible is everywhere for us on Sunday. Right? It's, it has to be. We have to listen to God's words, right? So in the call to worship, what do we do? We read the word. In the benediction, what do we do? We read the word. In our scripture readings, we're hearing the words that were delivered to our, our great ancestors, the things of God that were being told to them. And in the sermon, we take those things and we apply them to real places and real times of our day and our lives because it matters. The truth, the just judgments of God declared for us today, they matter, they do something for us. They help us align ourselves in what God has done. Even the songs, like I, man, when we had all those preachers in this summer and I didn't have to worry about coming up here to speak, like the worship, when these guys sang and we, we I like the richness of that, because I'm like super distracted normally on Sunday morning, but when I didn't have that distraction, I just like, man, I don't, these guys, they, they preach the gospel to me through song and reading every single Sunday, and it's, it's a glorious thing, and it's not an accident, right? Like, it's something we labor toward, and it's also something that the Spirit of God gives us great aid in doing. It's amazing. So I'm like, I walk out of here, and I'm like, how did God, what? He put all that together? This is glorious. So the Word is just absolutely central to everything that we do. That's why we gather with the Bible open. We see in these thrones the mention of David, the house of David. And this gives kind of a, 
a recognition of the Davidic covenant, God said to David, one of your sons will always be on the throne. One of your boys is always going to rule as king, right? And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that the throne started in Jerusalem and then there was a division. So there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? And then after that division, the northern kingdom was sacked by the Assyrians. They were taken away. And then the southern kingdom was left alone. And then what happened to the southern kingdom? It was sacked by Babylon. And those people were taken away, right? And then we have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that whole story, Esther in Persia, right? Like they weren't always on the throne in Jerusalem, right? So what's, what's going on here? Did these promises from God fall apart? Did they not happen? Well, we see in Luke chapter 1, during the Christmas story, right? We see a glorious truth declared about Jesus. It's in Luke 1, 31. It says this, And behold, you will conceive, this is an angel talking to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. This is amazing. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So the thrones of David that were to endure forever, Jesus sat upon as the son of the most high God, the heir, genealogically, the heir of David from the tribe of Judah. He was elevated to the throne. When? When he rose again. He was put on a permanent throne after his death for you and me. That permanent throne was a spiritual throne today and will one day be reestablished as a throne over all the earth because he will come back because he's alive now and he's returning for his bride. And so we see in this declaration about the thrones of the house of David, the pointing towards Jesus and the true establishment of the real temple and the eternal worship, right? And God's everlasting people. It is in Jesus that the door is opened for all who would believe. So the exclusivity of worship for the Jewish people alone is obliterated. <laughs> All can come and know their creator. All can come and enjoy worship of their true God and king. And we see in the closing that David yearned for the continuation of the worship of God. Let's read it, verse 6 through 9, as we wrap up. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So we see this deep desire in David for the endurance of Jerusalem, 
right? And we know from the history that we just kind of recounted that Jerusalem fell, <laughs> right? Then they came back and kind of rebuilt, and then Jesus came, and true Jerusalem was pointed to as he ascended to the throne of David. So we see that the, the yearning for the peace of Jerusalem is actually connected to uh, the worship of God throughout the generations of the future. David longed for the worship of God to be something that everyone at all times in all places could enjoy. That's When he's crying out for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, he's like, man, this eternal throne will stand forever and all people will be able to come through Jesus and worship. Right? He didn't quite know all the fulfillments of what that was going to look like, but he knew the promise. And he knew that the promise was that the worship of God would expand for all peoples. And this is our desire as well, that there would be peace and prosperity uh, in the local church for the sake of the global worship of Jesus to be ever expanding, right? It pushes us towards this desire to say, man, the greatest possible good for my neighbors and for my loved ones and for the strangers around me and for my enemies, the greatest possible good for them would be to know and worship their God. And the deep yearning, oh God, even my prayer, Lord, is that you would establish worship through your people. And for us, that's communicated today by the local church growing and spreading and being uh, pushed into all the places of darkness so that light might be proclaimed, right? Like this is, this is why missions exist. John Piper says it rightly that missions exists for the sake of the worship of God being spread around the world. That's why we do it. The whole point of planting churches is because not enough people are worshiping God. He's worthy of all worship. There is nothing like him, and there are thousands of people in a five-mile radius of where we stand right now that do not know how glorious God is. So for us to desire the worship of God is for us to desire the prosperity and the peace of God's church, which means on some level we got to give up our life for it. Look at David's prayer. May they be secure in your walls. May my brothers and may my companions be at peace, right? May the, the house of the Lord be at peace. He's thinking about everybody but himself. God, make Jerusalem glorious for my friends. Make Jerusalem glorious for my neighbors. God, make Jerusalem glorious for my kids, my grandkids, and my grandparents, and my strangers, and my enemies. God, make Jerusalem glorious David's saying. And then look at the last few words. I will seek your good. Seek means to strive after, right? Like to clamor toward, like to beg and beseech and to, like there's an everything, not like, a, oh, I lost my pen. I'm going to find my pen, Right? No, like, oh, I lost my treasure box. <laughs> like, like the black box that I locked my stuff. I'm like, oh, I lost it. I will seek it night and day. I will not tire until. So David has this disposition towards the temple and towards the worship of God. He says, I'm going to give everything I've got. One translation, I think it's the message translation, says, I will give my all for you. Direct translation for us today, this is work. And it's the most worthy labor that we will ever engage ourselves with. Why? 
because of the worship and glory of God. And listen, God is graciously put us in this place. Sebastian Dorch, our brother, spoke of it a month or so ago. Like being here is not an accident, and it's actually quite miraculous. Like don't tell anybody, I keep not telling anybody how cheap it is to be here because God just really worked something out for us that was years in the making. Why? Because the culture of this city is one that says worship isn't worth it. The culture of our city says God is not worth my attention. Church is stupid or dumb or it's just a bunch of hypocrites or I was hurt there. And so God just drops us in the middle so that we might proclaim the glory of God, so that we might say we recognize the hurt, the pain, the realities of your past, but there truly is nothing more for you to live for, nothing more glorious, nothing more certain, nothing more beautiful than to live for the worship of Jesus. And so we push, right? We push to make the gospel accessible to as many people as humanly possible. And we pray like David prayed for everyone else. Oh God, would you prosper this place for them, right? And listen, when you enter into that prayer, I'm just going to warn you, it will cost you. Most certainly, it will cost you. But the only things it's going to cost you are temporary things that will pass away anyways. The eternal will be built on you laboring to make much of the glory of Jesus. And so may we deeply desire the worship of Jesus for this God-centered, fruitful, glorious worship of Jesus that brings us toward healing and restoration, that puts us in contact with the very one who's made us. May we yearn for that. May we pray for that. May we work toward that. May we invite and bring others into that because it is the ultimate good and the ultimate joy for people to see and know and worship their God, both now and forevermore. So let's close by reading Psalm 122 one more time. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones of judge, for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So as we do every Sunday, we'll finish our time in worship and also taking communion and recognizing Jesus coming to shed his blood for his body to be broken for us was to give us ultimate access in worship of this God who made us. Amen.